Turn to 2 Corinthians 9. There's always one protester among the bunch, isn't there? What are you doing with me? I'll tell you what we're doing. We're presenting the eternal truths of the gospel to them, and they don't know how blessed they are yet. 2 Corinthians 9. We'll look primarily at verses 6 through 8 and then go a little farther than that. As we're continuing to learn and grow in our joyful generosity uh, building campaign over the last couple of weeks and the next few weeks, we're preparing to see what the Lord would do first in our own hearts. Because as we've said all along, this is, this is all about the heart. This is not about money. This is about our heart. But we want to see what he'll do in our own hearts for his own glory for the spread of his gospel. And to help us with that, I want to share the story this morning, first of all, of a faithful church. I want to share the story of First Baptist Church of Mustang, Oklahoma. This is a story of persistence, of gospel faithfulness, of a dogged determination to proclaim the name of Christ and to stay in fellowship with one another. First Baptist Church of Mustang was constituted in 1903, they met in schoolhouses and in other local church buildings when those churches weren't having those, their services. They did that for 15 years. In 1918, right at the end of World War I, one of their church members donated some land and they built their first church home. It was a big deal to them to have their first church home there. But just nine years later, in April of 1927, a tornado destroyed their church, completely put it to the ground. Two months later, They were already drawing up plans and beginning construction on a brand new building because they were determined to continue worshiping together. Fast forward about 40 years. In 1965, the church decided to relocate to make room for expansion. It took several more years to finally be ready for construction. And in the middle of construction in 1971, the new church was hit by a, guess what, tornado. Well, they finally completed that building, And just eight years later, they had to complete yet another new sanctuary. They built a multi-purpose building in 1983, another one in 1995. They built another new sanctuary in 2006, a new preschool and children's building in 2014, along with some other projects. And so you have a couple of church moves, a couple of tornadoes, multiple building projects, and the church continues moving forward with gospel faithfulness, proclaiming the biblical gospel as understood from Scripture. Now, I have a particular interest in First Baptist Church of Mustang, Oklahoma, because their senior pastor, who's been there about 20 years now, is a personal friend of mine. And he is a good man, a godly man, and he's been through four or five of those building campaigns. So I thought, why reinvent the wheel? So I, I cornered him on the phone, and I said, I'm going to pick your brain, and I wouldn't let him hang up. And I asked him, to give us some thoughts. I told him where we were. We're right at the beginning of joyful generosity. And he said, I want to give you some facts and some fears. He's a preacher, so he organizes his thoughts in outline form. (laughs) The facts that he gave me. He said, every time they've done a building campaign, it has positively impacted the overall faithfulness, the sanctification of the families in the church. It's not just that money comes in, it's that marriages get better and children are more obedient and life is prioritized better that that's happened every time. The second fact he gave me is that every time they've done a capital campaign, it has gotten community attention and created gospel opportunities where they've been able to proclaim the gospel to more lost people. 
A third fact, he said, is that every time they've done a capital campaign, not only have they enjoyed that common goal together, but there's been two side benefits. Their general fund giving has gone up and what they're able to send to their missionaries overseas has gone up as well. And so it's been just a a, a joyful process for them every time. Those are the facts. But he said, let me tell you the fears. Not the fears that he has, but fears that members of his congregation have expressed in past campaigns. And he said there's two major fears. The first fear is the fear of the loss of great memories. The fear of the loss of great memories. And, and he shared, and, and we understand this, somebody would say, well, I was baptized in this building. Or I came to faith listening to a sermon from that pulpit. Or we had such wonderful fellowship in this particular hall and now we're going to bulldoze it and build something new there. And so there's that, that, that fear of loss. And all of us here at Grace Bible Church, we have such fond memories here in this facility. Uh, myself, right there with you. The second fear, he said, is the fear of the personality of the church changing, that, that we're going to change, we're going to become different, we won't be us anymore, we'll lose our identity, and we'll be some sort of corporate entity that nobody likes anymore. And, and we understand that. Uh, there's a part of my heart that says, let's just close the doors and enjoy us. But that's not the Great Commission, is it? It's not what we're called to. And so I asked him, well, how did, how did you get through those fears? He said the fears were alleviated by simply going through the experience together, that that was the key. The fear of the loss of great memories, he said, we we cherish those old memories, but we've made new ones. And we have the memories of, of coming into a new building for the first time and the joy and the excitement that that brings. And the fear of the personality of the church changing. Well, our core values stay the same. Our doctrine stays the same. Our, our philosophy of ministry stays the same. We're not grounded in a location. We're grounded in the word of God. In other words, if all of a sudden we said, everybody time out, meet in the parking lot for three minutes and we'll continue, we would be doing the same thing. Proclaiming God's word, proclaiming the gospel. And so fears can be involved. But I want to bring up one more fear that can be involved in this sort of effort, one that's very real and very personal. And that is the fear that if I give, I might not personally have enough to meet my own needs, that I might not have enough and I might put myself in a bad position. We might call this the fear of lack of provision because we have hard realities. We have mortgage payments. We have car payments. We have electric bills. We have medical bills. We have people that we're trying to provide for their later years. And most people generally race their paychecks to the end of the month to see who gets there first. And that's just kind of our life. Those are realities. And especially if you're in a business which fluctuates greatly in one month, you're rolling in cash and the next month you're watching your bank account drop like a rock to the bottom of a pond and you go through that, you, you, you want to be careful. And so today I want to address our third reason to give. The last two messages we've said give because of God's ownership, give because of God's grace. But today I want to address the idea of give because of God's provision. Give because of God's provision. Now, this is actually a very challenging topic to address because the prosperity gospel preachers, which pollute our airwaves, they haven't helped with this any because not only do they deceive the lost with a, with a false gospel that God exists to make them healthy and wealthy and that, that, that God is there for them alone, they also put a bad taste in our mouths, in the mouths of the saved, 
when talking about God's provision and support, they put a bad taste in our mouth and they abuse scripture such that certain scripture passages actually have a negative connotation to us. And that's not okay. One of the masters of the abuse of scripture is the false teacher Creflo Dollar, appropriately named. He's famous for having worship services in which people come up and throw money at him. A church of 30,000 people where they're throwing money. This is, he, he uses scripture horribly. He's big on the Old Testament tithe that is giving 10% of your income. Totally misuses scripture. We covered that in the previous message. We're not under the tithe. We're not under that system. But he even equates tithing and salvation. He's documented the saying that there are people in his church who were unsaved, but they tithed, quote, that tithe was so strong that it hooked them to the blessing. Quote, you can't stay cursed if you're tithing. And quote, every sinner I know who is tithing ends up getting saved. In other words, give to me and God will save you. That's heresy. In another sermon, he said that he wished the church could legally line up all of the non-tithers across the platform and all of the tithers be given machine guns to shoot them and then they would be buried behind the church and then they would come back in and quote, have church and have the anointing. That's a man who's greedy and is willing to kill for money, at least in his mind. And so he's among so many that preach a twisted view of giving and preach, of course, that God will give you great, great wealth if you give to make you wealthy because after all, that's why God exists is to give you things. And so we're rightly repelled by this disgusting distortion of the gospel message. And among them, there are so many other prosperity gospel heretics. Creflo Dollar is infamous for his use of the phrase, the most popular phrase in all of the prosperity gospel world, sow a seed. Sow a seed. In other words, give money to me, to my ministry, and God will make you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. Now, the prosperity gospel does work for the guy who's preaching it. And of course, that phrase, sow a seed, is taken from our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 9. And this has become a text which for many believers actually is uncomfortable because of the association with the false gospel. It's so strong. But all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So we will not let false teachers hijack our Bible. They use it for their false purposes. We will use it as God intended. So we're just going to see what this text says in its proper context using our normal historical grammatical Bible study method to simply expose the meaning of this text. This is a very emotional topic. So I want to encourage you to not approach this with emotion. Yes, the Bible fills us with emotion. This is not one time that should happen because emotion is a terrible indicator of right and wrong. Emotion is a terrible way to evaluate truth. So what we're going to do is just stay very, very close to the text and let it speak for itself. Because this text contains tremendous insight into the heart of God concerning what he wants our hearts to be. And it has amazing comfort, promising that God does in fact provide for you and promises to bless our giving with more ability to give. We don't let the prosperity gospel steal what Scripture actually says. 
Well, let's set the scene here just briefly. In 1 Corinthians 16, you don't have to turn there, Paul had appealed to uh, the, the church in Corinth for help with the Jerusalem Relief Fund. Jerusalem had been impoverished through the, the famines in Judea in the 40s. The Corinthians had promised to give, but they didn't follow through. And so now we're a year later. Here in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is reminding, writing them a reminder. Remember that commitment you made? We examined the first five verses of 2 Corinthians 9 briefly at the celebration banquet. And we saw that the members were ready to give. They were zealous to give. And they were inspirational in their, in their giving, or at least in their desire to give. And then we saw also that the leaders reminded them of their commitment. They guarded the integrity of the church by reminding them of their commitment. And they organized advanced planning for giving, just like we're doing in Joyful Generosity. And now Paul gives specific guidance on the proper heart attitude toward giving and God's tender care of his people. If I had to choose just one message to do for Joyful Generosity, this would be it. Because this is about the heart. And so I want to keep this as simple as we can and stay very close to the text. I want to show you three heart attitudes about giving which give us confidence in the Lord's provision. Three heart attitudes about giving which give us confidence in the Lord's provision. And we'll keep these very simple. The first heart attitude, give with expectation. Give with expectation. Paul's going to outline a a simple proverb about the Lord's provision for his people and the relationship between provision and giving. Look with me at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's just a proverb. And he's using an agricultural metaphor that, that everyone reading this would be familiar with, that, that if you take a, a, a few seeds and plant them, you're going to get a small crop. And if you take a lot of seeds and plant them, you're going to get a big crop. And so he uses this metaphor of sowing, of planting seed, but he speaks first of sowing sparingly. Sparingly is a Greek word that means in a scanty or meager manner, thriftily, to be one who is stingy or to plant with frugality, to be frugal. In other words, there's a heart attitude in play here. This doesn't have anything to do with dollar amounts, doesn't have anything to do with wealth. It has to do with how you view giving to the Lord's work. Now, I point this out to mention an important feature of this word. I think sparingly is a spectacular way to translate this word in English because it's a self-defining word. It means that you're giving only what you think you can spare. It's what's left over. In other words, after I've taken care of everything else that is the most important to me, let's see what I have left. Now, by the way, he's not necessarily condemning this. He's just saying, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly, that God's going to treat you the way you've treated him. Now, the, the meaning of this in context is that if you have a heart attitude of being frugal in your giving, why would God give you more to give back to him? Because we're just funnels of his resources, and if you would rather hang on to them than give them away, he's going to funnel them through people who would rather give them away. It's a, it's a very simple concept. In the second half of the proverb, Paul says that whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, what does it mean to, to sow bountifully? Well, that phrase is actually three words in Greek. 
there's a preposition right in the middle of that phrase which acts upon the word translated bountifully to form what's called an idiom. It means a a well-accepted meaning of a phrase. Here's what so bountifully means to a Greek reader, to a Corinthian. It means to sow on the basis of blessing. On the basis of blessing. One scholarly lexicon, which is an academic Greek word study source, says this, quote, a large amount of something with the implication of blessing or benefit. Then in other words, you're giving with the expectation that a blessing is coming back to you as a result. That's simply what the text says. That is not a a human twist on it. That is what the word means. That same source translates this verse, quote, the one who plants an abundance will reap an abundance. It's a very simple concept. The most important feature here is that attitude of expectation on the basis of blessing. What blessing? Well, to reap bountifully with the hope of receiving the blessing of a bountiful harvest, a return from the Lord. This is the same concept that Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 10. The plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, in later verses we're going to see that the reason for the bountiful harvest isn't personal enrichment. That's not the reason, although the Lord's provision might result in his personal blessing on you. But primarily, it's so that the faithful can give more. That's the reason for the provision. This isn't about dollar amounts. Otherwise, the text wouldn't apply to all of us. This text applies to every one of us, regardless of your financial situation. In other words, the person who gives $25 And for whatever reason, this is a big and maybe even a very difficult gift for them to give. They're sowing bountifully. The person who gives $5,000 and doesn't even feel it and wants to make sure that they don't feel it, they are sowing in a very sparing fashion. So it's not, doesn't have to do with heart, with, with amount. It has to do with your heart. Now, obviously the wise giver wants to maximize the effect of his gift. We want to be giving to worthy and God-honoring causes, and and we uh, obviously want to have integrity in that. We've already made the case that the local church is always your first and primary line of giving. When I was in the Department of Development at the Master Seminary, I, I spoke to donors on the phone all the time, and sometimes there were donors who were giving a lot of money to the Master Seminary and very little or nothing to their local church. And my instructions all the way from the top from Dr. MacArthur himself was, if you're not giving to your local church, we don't want your money because your local church comes first. But sometimes a person is dubious about giving to the church. They, they want the money. They have the maximum effect. We all understand that. But God is the one who creates the maximum effect and money given with a right heart to a less than perfect ministry is still given with an expectation of reaping the reward from the Lord. I know of one preaching ministry that started with just, in very, very small ways, one faithful evangelist faithfully proclaiming the gospel, and that operation quickly uh, grew to sending out teams of evangelists all over. They ministered to tens of thousands of people in a very short time, received all kinds of donations to support this work, a very worthy work to support, and sadly, their treasurer was pilfering money from that organization and had to be removed. This was, of course, the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ the treasurer being Judas. And I don't think anybody would say, well, you shouldn't have given to that ministry. Of course, we give to imperfect ministries. Even Christ was imperfect, not because of him, but because of those around him. 
So we give with expectation that, that God is the rewarder of the faithful, and, and that's just simply what the text says. There's a second hard attitude about giving, which gives us great confidence in the Lord's provision for us. We'll call this give with consideration. Give with consideration, with thoughtfulness, with contemplation, with thought. Verse 7, the Apostle Paul continues, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we often get to the not reluctantly or under compulsion part pretty quickly. We're not going to get there yet. Each one must give. The Greek text here doesn't have a verb in it. It doesn't have an action word. The the English supplies the must give, but it's a very logical helper for us because the, the Greek word each means every man, every person, everyone. It doesn't say if you give, then this is how you should give. The implication here is clear. When you give, you should give this way. Can I show it to you the way it would look if we just took out kind of some of the English here? The point is this, verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give. In other words, there's the assumption that nobody's going to sow sparingly. You're all sowing bountifully. And then how do you do it? Each. But Paul lays out here three ways to give with consideration. Three ways to give with consideration. One is expressed positively and two are expressed negatively how not to give. Here are the three ways to give with consideration. First, as a personal decision. As a personal decision, Paul says that when you give, not if you give, each should give, quote, as he has decided in his heart. This word decided here is a verb form which has to do something, has to do with doing something in yourself or for yourself. It's called a middle voice verb and it means that that this is about me. It's not a selfish idea. It's the idea that, that this is something that's happening inside of me, in my heart. That there's great freedom now that transcends any idea of percentage or amount of giving because everyone knows his own heart, knows his own situation, knows his own ability Everyone knows their own uh, level of faith. And so you make a personal choice which you prayerfully believe is the best course of action for your particular circumstances. And if for whatever reason you prayerfully choose to continue to support the general fund of Grace Bible Church, that's not optional. That, That should be every single believer here doing that. But for whatever reason you do not want to participate in joyful generosity, If for reasons known only to yourself, you don't want to do this, that's your choice. That's your decision, and we'll honor that. In fact, on the commitment card, there's a checkbox for zero. And that's not so we can visit your house in the middle of the night and make fun of you and throw rocks or anything like that. But we're honoring that that's your decision, and that's your choice. There's a second way to give with consideration. Now Paul gets to the negatively stated reasons, not reluctantly. Not reluctantly. It literally means don't give out of grief or sorrow. Don't give what will make you grieve. In other words, don't give what will make you weep because you just gave away your rent money. I know one woman who was getting cash off her credit card in order to give. God doesn't need MasterCard to make the kingdom happen. If you're putting your offering in the offering bag and a tear is rolling down your cheek, let it be a tear of joy, not a tear of sorrow. In fact, our ushers are trained that if you're weeping when you give a check, 
Well, they have to ask, is that a tear of sorrow or a tear of joy? Tear of sorrow, we won't take your check. And the third reason to give, third way to give with consideration, negatively stated, not under compulsion. Not under compulsion. And that, it literally means don't give out of force or distress or duress. Meaning there is no or else attached to the appeals that we give. Nobody's going to say, I wish all the non-givers could be lined up here and shot. We're not going to say that. We, we don't say give or else God will be mad at you. Give or else you will be a lesser person. Give or else God will stop providing for you. Give or else the work of God will cease. Yes, the lease on our current facility is a real factor and that the rent is high and that we're concerned about this. Yes, we desire to make the biggest impact we can uh, for the kingdom. But the reality is, is that God is not wringing his hands over the fate of Grace Bible Church. He's just not. My prayer since arriving here over six years ago has been a robust prayer. My prayer is that this church will be faithful until Christ returns. And I think that's a, that's a worthy prayer but this is Christ's church, and while he does hold us accountable for our faithfulness, I don't think that the entire kingdom plan of Christ uh, focuses on our little church. I, I've heard men in churches with 75 people say, I am God's man for this entire county or this state. Really, you're barely God's man for the room. I mean, there's really not much that's going on here. If God wants to close our doors, he can do it now because it's his. It's not ours. And if he wants to explode the, the blessing with which we're able to bless our community, it's his, not ours. And so we don't need to give under compulsion. There, there's no sense that the kingdom of Christ is going to fail if Grace Bible Church doesn't build a building with more square footage. That's not going to happen. Now, that being said, let's not mistake that for Paul forbidding the use of strong appeals to give. He's not forbidding that. In fact, that's what he's doing in this chapter. He's making an extremely direct appeal. He's even saying earlier in the chapter, he's saying, boy, guys, I would sure hate for you to be embarrassed when I tell all the other churches how lousy your giving was, but I won't do that because I know your giving will be great. So he does make a very strong appeal. Now, I want you to listen very carefully because I think this is going to help drive this home. We've set what we're calling a faith goal of commitments for $800,000 over a three-year period. We call it a faith goal because it's more than one and a half times our annual budget and it will take faith in the Lord to do this. It's a very simple reason. We've set what we're calling a hallelujah goal of commitments for a million dollars. This is very simple because if we get commitments for a million dollars, what are we going to say? Hallelujah. There you go. I think that's only a $900,000 hallelujah though <laughs> because that's what we say. Praise the Lord when he does more than we ask for. So let's say our faith goal is $800,000 committed and we get commitments for $200,000. But every single gift, every single commitment is given with a heart of blessing, not out of grief and sorrow and not out of distress. That's giving that's pleasing to the Lord and demonstrates the right heart that he's after. That's a success because our hearts were changed. Let's say on the other side, that our faith goal is $800,000 and you not only surpass that, but you also surpass our hallelujah goal of a million dollars in commitments. But some of you gave, gave out of guilt or you gave out of pride that we want a big building to show off or you gave money that you should have used to buy your children's shoes. That's giving which is not commanded in scripture and is contrary 
to his will. On March 24th, we're going to reveal what you gave on March 10th and what you committed to give. We're calling March 24th Celebration Sunday because no matter what amount we reveal, if you've given according to the spirit of 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, that is to the glory and the praise of God and we, we celebrate that. And we, we prayerfully set those two goals and we base them on very reasonable statistics about what uh, concerning churches our size have accomplished and they're actually fairly conservative compared to those statistics. But we don't really know what God's goals are yet, do we? We will know what God's goals are on March 24th because on that day, we'll reveal those numbers. We're revealing his will and that's the most exciting part of all. And so we give with consideration. We, it's a personal decision. We don't give with, with reluctance and we're not under compulsion at all. What happens when you put that together? Personal decision, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Put those three together and what do you get? A cheerful giver. A cheerful giver, which Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. It's the Greek word hilaros, and we get our English word hilarious from this word, and boy, does that preach well. God loves a hilarious giver. If I've heard one sermon on that, I've heard a million, but our use of the word hilarious is not consistent with what that Greek word meant when Paul wrote the text. For us, hilarious is something extremely amusing or funny, But even just a century ago, hilarious was much more about being merry, joyful, having good cheer. You would say, I had a hilarious conversation with someone. It didn't mean that they were so funny. It meant they were so sunny. They were happy. They were cheerful. Hilaros speaks of being happy and merry and cheerful. In other words, if you give as a personal decision, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, you are a cheerful giver. And God loves this heart attitude. He loves it. Listen, I know that sometimes you may have to make a choice between buying groceries or giving. And so you might say, well, I'm going to give him my time and my talent. And this, of course, is a completely legitimate gift. First Peter 4 says so. Some of you have given to the church your time and talent, which would have cost us a great deal of money had you not given that. And the Lord honors that. But can I say this? We're not called to the time and talent gift as a lifestyle, as a long-range strategy. Paul is talking about money. And I know sometimes we use treasure and resources and other euphemisms, but this is money. So that's not a long-range strategy. My question is, is have you considered taking God at his word and instead of seeing as give, giving as a budget item that has to be deleted, rather see it as a means with, with which to demonstrate your faith in the Lord, to make that a part of your consideration that I want it to be by faith? Well, there's a third heart attitude about giving which gives us confidence in the Lord's provision for you. Expectation, consideration, our third heart attitude, anticipation anticipation verse 8 the apostle paul says and god is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work now even the novice bible student can see the obvious emphasis in this verse the greek adjective pas is translated four times as all and one time as every it's all 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 every and so there's a completion here there's a totality If we just follow the logic of the verse, and we can do this with some simple if-then statements, it really teaches us what it means. 
If you will give with expectation and consideration, as explained in verses 6 and 7, then you can expect God to make all grace abound to you, meaning to provide monetarily for you. And if God is providing monetarily for you, then you'll have all sufficiency for everything you need. And if you have all sufficiency for everything you need, then you can abound. It literally means to go above and beyond, to go higher in what? In every good work. And Paul reminds us of how God provides for his own by quoting from Psalm 112 in verse 9. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And so what is it that you're anticipating? What is your anticipation about? You're anticipating the provision of God, maybe even in an increasing manner. Maybe in a way that that even betters your own life. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, in other words, all that you need, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In, In other words, God provides for your mortgage, for your electric bill, for your gasoline. Why wouldn't he provide for you to give? Why is that on you? It's not on you. It's part of his provision. Before we made a final decision among the leadership to embark on joyful generosity, I spoke to the pastor of a little church, little tiny church, very, very different than First Baptist Church of Mustang. Very different situation. Small town church, they're just getting by. The pastor's a good man. He's faithfully preaching the gospel. Very moderate to low economy there. And the pastor told me of story after story of how faithful God was in the lives of their members when they gave sacrificially to their little building campaign. As a matter of fact, the church was so impacted and overwhelmed by this that the church approached the leadership near the end of their campaign and said, can we do it again? Can we do it again? Because my marriage is better. I'm I'm in church every week. I'm giving regularly. My life is well-ordered now. Can we have another campaign? So at the request of the membership, they did a second one. And saw great blessings, saw people coming to faith in Christ because their impact in the community was growing as well. Randy Alcorn tells the story of a small business owner. His business was making about a $50,000 profit per year, very modest. The business owner attended a conference and was challenged to give a million dollars to the cause of seeing people won to Christ. This was overwhelming to him. So he and his wife said, we, we got to start small, but they started Fairly aggressively, they set a goal to give the next year the equivalent of their annual profit, to give $50,000. Well, the year went along, and they, they weren't even close. I mean, they, they were going to miss it by, by five figures easily, which was very discouraging. And on December 31st, they received a surprise, which allowed them to make that goal right at the last day of the year. So they said, wow, the Lord honored that request. So they decided to double that the next year. The Lord honored that request. And within just a few years, they were able to pass the giving of $1 million just because they continued to be faithful. But did you notice something? And this is why I love this story. God was providing for their needs, not so they could live an opulent life of affluence. They didn't keep moving to a bigger house and buy bigger cars every time the Lord was blessing them. They just kept being funnels of God's resources. And they reached the point that they were giving, giving away many times more than what they kept. This wasn't in response to some name it and claim it appeal. This wasn't in response to a false prosperity gospel or buying a private jet for the latest televangelist. 
It was just born out of a desire to do something about the lost and to see them saved. Not one of you will arrive in heaven having starved to death. And God says, if only you hadn't been so generous in giving, I would have provided for you. If you starved to death, that was God's will and it means your time on earth was done, your mission was accomplished. Not that you gave too much to the work of the Lord. That'll never happen. What happens when you give? Well, Paul rifled out benefit after benefit in the remainder of this chapter. It produces material and spiritual blessing and produces worship. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's worship. The second benefit, you'll provide for needs and produce worship. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And the third benefit, you will bless the church and produce worship. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. And look how our giving quickly gets pointed heavenward to the glory of God and to his mercies and to his kindness. Verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he ends climactically here by making a connection between financial material provision from God and the greater gift. What's the greater gift, this inexpressible gift? Financial blessing could never be said to be an inexpressible gift, an indescribable gift, because it's countable. If the Lord gave you a billion dollars, you can still count it. It is not an inexpressible gift. The inexpressible gift is Jesus Christ. It must be that in Christ You're justified and considered righteous and pure. In Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. In Christ, you have received forgiveness for all your sins. In Christ, you've been called to his eternal glory. In Christ, you're sanctified, you're set apart, you're made holy, you're made different for his purposes. In Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit who remade you, who reformed you, who recreated you and has sealed you for heaven. In Christ, you're given an eternal inheritance. In Christ, you're given a spiritual family forever in the church and in the Old Testament saying to the past, and in the believers yet to come in the future, in Christ, you've been put into the legal will of God as the co-heir with his son of a glorious kingdom. In Christ, you're safe at the moment of your death. You'll be instantly in his presence. In Christ, you'll reign with him in the future kingdom forever and ever. In Christ, you will not be judged in the final great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. In Christ, you'll be kept far away from the eternal lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels and all who have rejected Christ through the ages. In Christ, you'll walk on a new earth. You'll look up at a new heaven. You'll walk the streets of a new Jerusalem. And according to Revelation 22, 5, you will with him reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, that's an inexpressible gift. So it's really pretty easy for the Apostle Paul to say, look, when you give generously, the Lord's going to provide for you and multiply your gift. Look at the indescribable gift. Look at everything that's already yours. Do you think he can't pay your mortgage payment? It's already yours. March 10th is Commitment Sunday. 
And that's the day when we bring a special gift out of what God has already given to you to kind of start our, our time off with a bang here. And then you bring your commitment card. By the way, even if you're choosing for whatever reason not to participate, please check that off because until we get a card with your name on it checked off, I don't want to give anything. We're going to keep coming after you because we'll think you weren't here or something. So check that card off. One last thing. I have a very practical challenge for you. It is a spiritual mathematical challenge and I don't think I've ever used those two words in the same sentence in my life. It's a spiritual challenge that requires record keeping, which is very simple. You're going to create a document or a notebook and you're going to draw a line right down the middle of a page and it's going to have two columns. Column one, what you give and and the date you give it. And you might even record your thoughts of joy on what you gave that day. Column two, how the Lord provides for you in special ways, an extra bonus at work, a business deal that goes well, personal decisions that enable you to give more. And then you simply keep this record for the next three years. Column one is what you give. Column two is what the Lord gives. And here's the challenge. Who's going to give more, you or the Lord? Let's call this a friendly competition that you know you're going to lose because God never loses. God never loses. And you know what you'll have at the end of three years? You'll have a written record of God's amazing provision in your life as a testimony of abundant grace that you've already received. You know the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, you shall not test the Lord your God. There's one exception. Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says, test me in this. If you give, I will supply all your needs. And so if we have that written record and you have page after page after page of seeing what the Lord does, what will that do? It will make you say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift because you're seeing a literal record of how he treats you as a kingly son and a kingly daughter. That's a glorious thing to do. Well, I hope that you will trust the Lord for his provision. Don't be afraid. I promise you will not starve. I promise. The Lord has promised this. Let's pray together and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Our Father, it is with joy and anticipation now that we arrive at what we would call the the high point of our Christian worship and that is to remember the Lord in his death, the inexpressible gift of Christ. And so, Lord, coming now to remember the body and the blood of your dear son. We would ask you, Father, to bless this time. Lord, we know, according to 1 Corinthians 11, that we are not to come to this time in an unworthy manner. And so I ask you, Lord, to allow us the privilege of coming in humility and in lowliness to our great and holy God. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for his amazing courage and steadfastness and dedication to your plan to die on behalf of all who would believe in him. And so we remember him, we celebrate him with a sense of joy and a sense of sobriety all together this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen.